These are just a piece of a puzzle, right? These are cool tools that we have, but they're just that, they're just tools. All right, welcome back everybody to season two, episode six of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by today. Today, we're gonna talk about advanced cardiovascular imaging. So things like CAC and CT angiogram and what they mean, why do we use those and why do we care about them in the first place? So let's dive into it right now. All right, like I mentioned, we're talking about advanced cardiovascular imaging today to assess risk. So that's like the main purpose of this. We want to understand how can we use these to help us assess the risk, right? We don't want to do something that's just academic. You know, this isn't a study. We want to understand how can we use these tests to make better decisions to help lower our risk of cardiovascular disease. Okay, so question number one, why do we care about this? Well, we care about this because if we see calcium in your coronaries, that means you have subclinical atherosclerosis. And subclinical atherosclerosis means you don't have symptoms yet, right? Like if you have really advanced atherosclerosis, you're going to have maybe chest with exertion or angina, as we'll call it. But essentially, what we're saying when we have subclinical means we have plaque, we have atherosclerosis in our arteries, but we're not having symptoms yet. And that's the whole importance of these, these visualization tools, right? We can see things really early, and when we see things really early, we can then risk stratify patients more appropriately and then treat them more aggressively. And so, like I said, we care about this because if we see it, then we have a problem and we want to treat it. All right, let's move on. The two main types of imaging that are most widely used in the medical literature and in clinical practice are the CAC and CT angiogram. CAC stands for coronary artery calcium. And CT angiogram and CAC, these are both non-invasive tests, meaning nobody's going through any sort of artery to look at your heart specifically, but these are pictures of your heart. So we use thin slices on CT to kind of take a look at that. They said they're non-invasive, but they do have some risk of radiation. The CAC scoring then can be used to determine the actual presence and extent of calcified coronary artery plaque, whereas the coronary CT angiogram, or sometimes they'll call it CTA, this visualizes calcified and non-calcified plaque, as well as the severity of luminal stenosis. So what that means is the CAC is kind of like binary. It's like, okay, do you have calcium or not? And we can, we can quantify that more, but what it doesn't show is soft plaque, soft plaque, meaning things that haven't calcified yet. Whereas the CT angiogram that can see these non-calcified plaques. And also it can see how much is occluding lumen. So if you know, you think of the lumen, how the circle there, how much of that is being encroached with the plaque, we can see that on a CT angiogram. A CAC is relatively affordable. It's like a couple hundred dollars. So it's relatively speaking, but usually people are paying out of pocket for this, usually not covered by insurance. Um, relatively affordable, but not that specific. Whereas this CT angiogram, you can see into the coronary arteries better and you know it can be used to rule out severe stenosis and the you know to quantify the plaque burden. But once again, this is gonna be significantly more expensive, usually not covered by insurance. Um, and it's usually not our first go-to test. But like I said, both of these are used as a tool to assess risk, right? But also to help promote change in lifestyle. Like let's say you get a scan, right? And you find coronary calcium and you see calcium, you know, that's kind of a come to Jesus moment. And like, oh my gosh, like I have atherosclerosis, like I have something going in my heart. A lot of times it can help promote change for people. So like I said, we use it for multiple reasons to assess risk, but then also sometimes to help people buy in and say, Hey, we got to do something about this. All right, now let's talk about CAC testing specifically, like why are we doing this? And I mentioned a little bit before in the last one, but really what it does is it helps with clarification and helps drive medication decisions or treatment decisions. And if you go back previously, the ACC AHA guidelines, I did a whole podcast about that. It talks about this kind of in-between zones or intermediate risk, right? Like if someone has a 0% risk, which is pretty much impossible, but they have, you know, that's easy. Like, okay, we're not doing anything. Someone has a 50% risk, like, okay, that's pretty easy. We want to aggressively lower your cholesterol, probably going to start you on medication. But if you're like, like I said, anywhere in that like 5 to 20% risk calculation when you use, use the different calculators, that's kind of like no man's land, right? Like they say, oh, recommend starting a stat and can talk about it. You know, and in the guidelines with the mention is that you can actually do a CAC score to kind of 
see if that changes things. You know, there's some estimates that the ACC HA risk predictor can sometimes overestimate risk, sometimes as much as like 75% in some patients. And so what we do here is, you know, you save a patient who's in that borderline, you get a CAC and it's negative, you feel a lot more reassured about that. CAC negative would mean, you know, CAC score of zero, like we don't see any calcium at all. If we have that, it has actually a strong negative predictive value, meaning like the likelihood of a negative test being true is pretty strong. So like I said, if we get a negative test, we feel pretty good about that. And that might change, you know, your risk factors from someone who's maybe recommended to start a statin, where if you get a CAC, then it shows zero, then you might go down and say, oh, nope, we're actually not recommending that at the time. So it can kind of help make us decisions and drive treatments. You know, obviously this is not a be all end all saying, if you see this, it's totally clean. Obviously lots of things can happen, um, but this can kind of help determine our treatment for, for what we're going to do and how to manage a cholesterol. Okay, and one question we have from a physiologic standpoint is why do we see calcium? Well, it's kind of complicated and involves a bunch of metabolic and inflammatory factors, but essentially what usually happens is vascular smooth muscle cells, they usually inhibit calcification, right? So like the smooth muscle cells of the coronary arteries usually inhibit calcification, but when it's disrupted by inflammation, oxidized LDL particles, calcification then gets upregulated. So that's where we see that. It is, like I said, a whole process, kind of like the whole process of inflammation is showing us that, hey, something's going on there. Your body's trying to do the best to kind of protect things. And then the calcium is kind of a byproduct of that. Um, I do want to mention, this is not normal aging, right? Like you don't expect that, oh, like if you don't age normally, like you're just going to have calcium. You know, we see that a lot in the West because of just our abundance of heart disease, but like it necessarily that doesn't mean it's going to happen always. So, you know, in a perfect situation, as someone ages, they're not necessarily going to have calcium there and we shouldn't expect that. And so I just want to put that out there as well. All right. So now let's talk about the coronary artery calcium scores versus risk cohorts. As I've talked about previously in a whole other podcast, these risk cohort equations are based off of multiple cohorts that looked at lots of different risk factors. The big thing, you know, are the Framingham risk calculator. We talk about that. We look at age, gender, smoking, blood pressure, and cholesterol. These are like the main components. And what they did is in these cohort equations, they said, hey, when you have X, Y, and Z, you know, you're this old, you smoke, your blood pressure is this, you know, what are the odds of having an event? And then they kind of came up with these calculators and these equations from there. And that's kind of what we do. Essentially, we take these risk factors, you know, your doctor might have you say, what's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol? Type those in say, okay, you're at 7% risk, meaning you have a 7% chance of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years. That's what those mean. And what they kind of looked at here, and there have been multiple studies that shows that the CAC might actually do a better job of predicting coronary events than just the calculator alone. And that kind of makes sense, right? It's intuitive. A calculator is just a calculator. You know, it's just going off of numbers on a person. Every person is unique and individualized, right? So as we talked about in the previous podcast, you know, this is not a just black and white, like, yes, you do this, no, you do that. It's like, it's a discussion, right? We understand the risks, the benefits. We talk about the nuanced things. You know, some person may have, you know, awful numbers, but they might not have a heart disease. Other people might have, you know, perfect numbers, but they have lots of calcium. So it's very individualized. And they're saying this is a tool to kind of help stratify risk, right? If someone has no real risk factors, but they get a CAC score and it's pretty high, well, then that changes the calculus entirely. There's been multiple studies. One study did show that, you know, a CAC was independent risk factor for coronary artery disease when compared to the, the risk calculator. So in and of itself, like regardless of what the risk calculator said, if your CAC was high, you had increased risk of having cardiovascular event. Another sh study showed that CAC independently predicts incident premature coronary heart disease over the standard risk factors alone. So once again, in and of itself can help you know, predict risk. The big Mesa study, there's a big study called the Mesa study. It looked at, you know, coronary artery calcium and those that had a score between 100 and 300, which is kind of like in between, but significantly higher than, than zero. They had a seven time increased risk of coronary events. And those with a CAC for 300, which is pretty darn elevated, had a almost 10 times increase in events. And like I said, and in the study in Mesa, about 50% of people overall would qualify for statin. But at the end of the day, 41% of the patients who qualified for statin didn't have any calcification. So that's kind of where it comes in, right? 
these people who are saying, hey, I, I qualify for a statin, they get a CAC and actually show no calcifications whatsoever. So it's just kind of an interesting you know, piece of the puzzle. It kind of gives us more information to have a more nuanced discussion of, hey, should I be starting medication? Should I be doubling down lifestyle? I don't know. I don't want to say like this doesn't replace anything. This doesn't replace numbers. This doesn't replace lipids. Um, it's just a piece of that equation. Okay. And so what is the cost effectiveness of a CAC though, right? Typically they're about a hundred to $200 out of pocket. So not cheap, but not, you know, the most expensive thing in the world. And we're still not sure about its financial utility, right? Like, is it saving us money down the line? We're not sure. There was a study um, that evaluated about 2,000 patients that randomized to either a CAC or no CAC. And they found that those who got the scan were more likely to improve blood pressure, LDL. However, they did end up getting more tests like EKG and stress tests. So this is kind of what I talked about earlier, where if you get a test, right, and it kind of scares you, well, it might help you improve your blood pressure, your cholesterol numbers. But like I said, it may also lead to having more things like EKG stress tests done. So not entirely sure. Another subset of that MESA study that we talked about before, they saw that treatment based on CAC was more effective in preventing coronary events and it identified patients who would be benefit from a high intensity statin and it helped increase medication adherence. So essentially what they did, they it was more effective in preventing events, which was good, and identifying patients who would qualify for a high intensity statin. So they, you know, when they do the CAC, they see people with lots of calcifications, say, hey, ooh, you probably benefit from this. And then it also helped increase adherence as well, right? So if you think about it, if you're looking at a picture and you see your coronary artery with calcium in it, I think it's gonna have a lot more buy-in. I mean, I know personally, if I saw that, I'd be like, ooh, I gotta take my meds because I really gotta control things. Like I said, it's hard to give a definitive yes or no, like is it cost-effective? But like I said, usually out of pocket, so this is a discussion you have to have you know, with your doctor or with your patient if you're a physician watching this. Like I said, so it's it's not a slam dunk either way, but you know, an argument could be made one way or another. Okay, and so I wanna talk about the power of zero, right? That sounds like a cool title for a book. But this is saying, hey, what happens when we have a zero score on our CAC? So a CAC score of zero is a good thing, right? So showing that if you have zero, it has a really good predictive value, you know, in those people with no symptoms. That is the big caveat, right? If you have symptoms, like it doesn't matter what the CAC shows, like we're concerned that you have pretty significant atherosclerosis. But if you have no symptoms, a score of zero is, you know, pretty reassuring, which is good. They found that coronary artery calcium is usually good at predicting events, and especially in those, you know, where the calculators fall short, meaning like different ethnic populations, women, and those with like the low intermediate risk. CAC is really good at kind of helping us delineate, okay, are we missing something, right? Like those people who may be unrepresented in the calculators or those with low intermediate risk, getting CAC might help us decide, okay, this is like the piece we need to kind of push us one way or another. One study by Lukoski et al. found that about 3,600 asymptomatic women in the MESA trial who were deemed to be low risk by their risk calculator, 32% of them had a CAC score greater than zero. And this group was more likely to have coronary heart disease compared to those with CAC of zero. So what this is saying is that in this, you know, the, by the calculator alone, right, they were low risk. And 32%, also pretty much a third of those people had some calcium in there. So that's this is another reason saying like, hey, just because, you know, my risk is super low, doesn't necessarily mean anything's going on. So that's why like using this conjunction is very helpful, right? Like the risk calculator kind of gets us a ballpark. You know, there's some people, if you know, your LDL is 600 and your blood pressure is 180 and you smoke and you have diabetes, like that's like a no brainer. It's like, yeah, okay, we're gonna be high, really high risk. But like, there's a lot of people who kind of fall in this uh, in between zone and a CAC can kind of help give you an additional piece of information to kind of make that decision better. Another study showed that those with a CAC of zero, the annual event rate was 0.027%, whereas the 10-year risk calculation would, would predict about 0.3%. So, you know, 0.3 to 0.02, like that might not sound like a lot, but that's actually a pretty significant difference. And so it was a much lower risk in real life when a CAC was zero. Another, there's another study done at Walter Reed, so the big military institution had about 13,000 patients studied for about nine years. And they found that those that, uh, 
Statin use in those who had a CAC with calcifications reduced MACE events, but those who did not have calcifications, it didn't reduce events. So essentially what they're saying is if you had you know, a positive CAC score, you had calcifications in your coronaries, having a statin helped help reduce events in the future. If you didn't have a positive CAC, though, the statins didn't seem to make a difference in this study in over nine years. And specifically, the number needed to treat with a CAC score greater than 100 was only 12. So that's pretty much a no-brainer. If the CAC's greater than 100, a statin seems to be a benefit. Um, if the CAC score was zero, they didn't seem to have any benefit of the, from the statin. And then if the CAC score is in between, between 1 and 100, the number needed to treat was about 100 people, um, like I said. And if you look at this image here, this is what we call a Kaplan-Meier curve showing the different groups of CAC scores and how essentially if you look at, if you're watching here in the video, the black line is the highest category, so CAC scores above 300. And you can see that on the y-axis showing cumulative incidence of you know cardiovascular disease, meaning if you have a higher CAC, you have a really, really higher risk of having cardiovascular disease. And so this is why we put so much weight into it and why it can be really helpful. All right, and so we talked about asymptomatic patients, right? Like people who have no problems whatsoever, a CAC score can be very helpful. What about patients who have symptoms already? So people who have that exertional chest pain or the angina. Well, it turns out it's not as good. When symptoms are present, the pretest probability goes down substantially, and then the negative predictive value falls. Meaning that like even if it's negative, we're not going to be like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's negative. I'm I'm not worried. It's like no. If you have symptoms, like if you have angina, like even a negative test, we're not going to be like. Oh, that's that's fine. We're still going to be concerned, you know. So essentially, it's not that helpful for in symptomatic patients. You know, there's a study by Guseri et al. show that a CAC score greater than 170 um, in those patients, they were much more likely to have obstructive coronary artery disease on angiography. So when they went there with an actual catheterization, um, they had obstructive disease. A big promise study showed that CAC in symptomatic patients was similar to functional testing in predicting risks. So functional testing, things like stress testing. So it may have a role for that. Um, but once again, you can't, in a high-risk patient, a CAC of zero does not rule out coronary artery disease at all. Like we know that there are soft plaques that don't show up on calcification. So um, it's definitely not something that we just say, oh, like, okay, it's zero. If they're high risk, we still are concerned about things. And on this graph we're going to show here, these are the survival stats in various CAC groups. So essentially what it's showing, though, if your CAC was high, you had, you know, worse outcomes. Essentially, you had a lower chance of surviving. So, and that's kind of consistent with what we've shown. The higher the CAC means the more calcium, which means the more atherosclerosis you probably have and the more advanced disease. And so this is kind of like playing devil's advocate here, where meaning like a CAC score doesn't necessarily show us everything, right? So there are some people who say like, oh, my CAC is zero. That's not a problem. And that doesn't seem to be the case. There are people who have CAC scores of zero who still have events. And so we can't put all of our eggs in that basket that, oh, CAC is clean. I'm good. So just something to consider as well. All right, and so here we're going to talk about various organizations and what their guidelines are for CACs. Like I said, I talked about the you know the, the 2018 ACCHA guidelines before, kind of how we use that and they recommend that for people who are intermediate risk or to kind of help determine whether we should start a, a lipid lower medication. In 2010, the ACCHA, like I said, talked about the intermediate risk, the updated one in 2018. It's kind of the same as well. 2016 European guidelines said consider it as a risk modifier. So like we've talked about before, a risk modifier means, hey, if you happen to get this CAC and it's positive, that boom, that gives you an extra point for risk and kind of makes us a little more concerned. 2018, the USPSTF said there was insufficient data to assess risk benefits. Um, that's kind of par for the course, USPSTF, unless it's like very clearly, usually they're not recommending doing something that costs money, um, but that makes sense. Once again, we talked about it with our 2018 guidelines on management. If you're age 40, 75 without diabetes and your LDL is in that in-between range of 70 to 189, you know, if you do have a risk that's about seven and a half to 20, you know, give or take there, can consider a CAC to kind of decide therapy. That's kind of what we talked about there. Um, if you have a positive CAC, they said in that situation, meaning anywhere even above one, so one to 99, they kind of favor starting a medication. But once again, it's a kind of a, a discussion, a risk benefit discussion you're gonna have. And then finally, there was a 2017 expert consensus of the Society of 
cardiovascular computed tomography. That's a lot. I'm sorry. Um, essentially, this showed that CAC is, should be used for shared decision making in asymptomatic patients without clinical and coronary artery disease. You know, in that age of 40 to 75, in that risk of about five to 20 percent. So once again, the general consensus we step back and see like, hey, this is not a get out of jail free card, not a, Hey, um, you know, I have lots of symptoms, lots of risk factors, but my CAC is zero. Like we're still not feeling confident about that. What this is, this is kind of deciding people in the, in between, like if the CAC is zero, you know, that makes us feel a little more reassured. Whereas, you know, if we're in the, in between where maybe we don't qualify or maybe we're borderline and then we have a really positive CAC that might change things. And so once again, just a part of the equation, we look at the whole patient we treat patients, not numbers or not images. So we treat the whole patient. All right, and so how do we actually get the CAC and how much radiation does it give us? Well, first things first, what essentially they're doing is it is a CT-based imaging, so we kind of use slices, and they're pretty small, so 0.6 millimeters thick. You know, you do not need IV contrast, and the average radiation is something called 2.7 millisieverts, and that's how we measure radiation. The radiation is similar to a mammogram, so nothing crazy at all. And like I said, in a, in a year, the goal is to have 20 millisieverts or less per year, with the average being about 6.2 per year for people with just like general things with, you know, air travel and sun and all that like we want to be a, a little bit below 20 so as you can see it's not a huge load um but it does range there are some places that are higher and some places that are lower and so at the end of the day though like if it's similar to a mammogram we are you know getting those and recommending those in our female patients you know every couple of years and so it's something to consider that you know it does have a risk but it does seem to be pretty low and you can have some good information on this if uh you know it might help you in the long run all right, so now we're gonna talk about how we score a CAC, right? So a CAC, the official scoring is a Gatson score. So that's what it is. Essentially what we have, it's the most popular one. It looks at the area, you know, in essentially millimeter squared and it looks at the lesion density and it kind of looks at something called a density weighting factor. So like I said, long story short, we're gonna do the area times the actual density. So this density weighing factor though, essentially when we look at CT, it's got something called attenuation or how the x-rays pass, pass through an object of a lesion. So you can kind of hover over and say, you know, see what the attenuation and there's going to be different attenuations for different structures like bone versus soft tissue versus anything like that. And they're given in Hounsfield units. So essentially what happens is, you know, these Hounsfield units will be different for different objects that they have. So in this density weighting factor, like I said, we're looking at the maximum CT attenuation of a specific lesion. So if the lesion is, you know, between 130 and 199 Hounsfield units, it gets, you know, 1.200, 299 to 300, 399 is three and 400 is four. Like I said, that's, generally what we're doing there in terms of that. So that's how we get that density weighting factor, right? And then we're gonna multiply that by the actual area of itself. And if you look at it here on this picture, this is kind of a, if you're following along, I'll, I'll explain it visually, but it's showing the Gatson score, meaning you have the CAC area times the density factor. So like I said, density factor is how we figure out you have to use a scanner and look on CT scanner and kind of say, Hey, what's the, what is the density there? And you're going to have the area times that specific factor. And then that's going to, you're going to add those up together. And that is essentially what it's all going to be. Um, you know, when you do each lesion, so if you look on the example here, there's one lesion, right? You look at that one lesion, you're going to do specifically that whole thing, the density factor times, you know, the area, and that's one lesion. And then if you have multiple lesions, you're going to add those all up to get a total score. So there are a couple of things that can overestimate things like motion. If you have that can overestimate that. So have to be considered about that. Also, like you can, if you have calcium, you know, in outside the coronaries, like in the valves, sometimes those need to be excluded because that can throw things off. And then if you have a, a poor quality scan or noisy images, that can sometimes underestimate things. And so obviously you're not reading that. I'm not reading them. These are usually read by, um, 
you know, a cardiologist or, you know, a special radiologist, but this is essentially how we score. We see how much calcium is in there. Like, you know, Oh, I see a lesion. Okay, cool. What's the density of that? What's the area? And we add up all those lesions together to kind of give you a total CAC score. And like we said before, we kind of fall in that area of zero, you know, hundred to 300 and 300 plus are kind of the areas we think about. Um, but the higher, the worse score. All right, next we're gonna move on to coronary CT angiography or CCTA. This is the other version of the imaging that we talked about. Like, so this is kind of our next step if you know we've already had a CAC and we needed some additional imaging, this is something we consider. We're gonna look at any artery that's greater than two millimeters and we're looking for plaque. And how they define plaque is, it has to be something that's greater than one millimeter squared within or adjacent to the coronary lumen. So essentially something has to be more than one millimeter squared to be distinguished as plaque. And how we grade this is essentially if it's normal, you're not gonna see any plaque. So no plaque means a normal scan. If we have plaque, you know, we're gonna grade these lesions by segment. Um, we're gonna have either a segment involvement score or the total plaque score. So we're gonna look at each segment and kind of add it up together. The segment involvement score, we're adding up any number of segments with any coronary lesion, you know, kind of giving a total number of segments with stenosis. And then the total plaque score is essentially the amount of plaque in each segment graded from mild, moderate to severe. So how they kind of grade that, like I said, it's different for how, how you grade severity based on um, the characteristics of it, how much is you know, occluding it, all that stuff. It's not necessarily important, but in summary, we're looking at these individual slices of the coronary arteries, and then we add up those numbers to get a segment involvement score. And then the total plaque score is added up by looking at how much stenosis is in each segment using the segment stenosis score. So once again, that's a whole lot, but what we're saying is we look at each segment, see how much stenosis is there, and then add them up, and then we have a score from there. Okay, and so moving on, you might be asking, Jordan, that last slide was ridiculous, super boring. How is this useful? Great question. The main takeaway here is that this is not a screening tool, and this is pretty much used for patients who are high risk. Like I said, this is not gonna be the CAC where it's a screening tool or kind of helping differentiate. This is gonna be ordered by a specialist, usually like a lipidologist or a cardiologist, something like that. It's generally used in high risk patients. Once again, it has to be the right person because this can be expensive too, usually not covered by insurance. And so it really has to be someone who you think would benefit from this. It may be helpful in patients who have high risk conditions like diabetes or inflammatory conditions like HIV, rheumatoid arthritis, once again, it's those people who don't fit in the box, right? So people who are not quite sure about the risk or we think they're pretty high risk, this can be helpful to kind of help give them, you know, a different risk gratification or help drive treatment, essentially what it comes down to. It's really just coming out to help clarify risk though. Okay, and one thing I want to mention here, there's something called intravascular ultrasound. So if you read in the literature here, they sometimes talk about intravascular ultrasound. And what that is, is people are actually going inside the vessel to use ultrasound to get the size or presence of plaque. So it's a, an invasive imaging tool so we can see actually inside the artery, that's cool. Um, this is invasive though, like we talked about here, when we're having any of the you know CCTA or the CAC that's non-invasive, there's some radiation, but we're not actually going inside the artery. Whereas this is getting inside you know the artery, which is invasive, and so that means it's risky. And they found in studies that you know the coronary artery scan, so the, the CCTA scan, looks like they have a pretty good correlation with this. So at the end of the day, most of the times you're gonna see this used in academic settings. Like I said, if you're reading studies, you'll see IVUS or intravascular ultrasound used, but that's typically not standard practice and we're not getting some people to have risk. That's you know the other imaging modalities you talked about. But I wanted to include this for completeness because you might see it in some of the journal articles you read. All right, so let's land the plane. In summary, these are just a piece of a puzzle, right? These are cool tools that we have, but they're just that, they're just tools. You know, I don't treat patients based on their lab values or their x-rays or, you know, the history alone. I use all those in conjunction. We listen to the patient, we look at the clinical context and we figure it out and we treat patients. We use our brain and we think critically. Like I said, I just want to drive home the point that, you know, 
just because you have something on this test does not mean you have to do anything necessarily. You know, you never have to do anything. You're autonomous. You can do what you want, but it helps give us more information, right? I'm going to use all these pieces to kind of build a picture of saying, Hey, this is where your risk is. This is what could happen. You know, what are your thoughts are? That's how I treat these studies. You know, when I see a CAC, this would be the first one that I do if we're going to do any sort of imaging. The CCTA will leave that to people, you know, like cardiologists, lipidologists necessarily, and it's a little more expensive, but the CAC is relatively affordable. And that would be my first line. If we have questions, right? Like I said, some people are slam dunk. Other people are not. And so this is when we use this, it's in those situations where people aren't slam dunk. And I also want to remind you that no test is perfect, right? It's very plausible that you have a negative CAC score and can still have, you know, something like a heart attack that that can happen and does happen. And the studies show that it does happen. So once again, if I see a negative CAC score, but have lots and lots of risk factors, I don't say, okay, well, I'm going to ignore everything else. We say, okay, you know, let's put this all together and see how this fits together. So once again, I don't want people to say, Hey, you know, and the other way as well, like, Oh, I have, I have, a CAC score that's positive, like I'm gonna have a heart attack, like doesn't necessarily mean that at all. But once again, this is just a piece of the puzzle. So I hope that you can understand that we're gonna use this together and you should be using this with someone with your healthcare provider kind of talk about that as well. But thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. Hope you found this helpful. If you did find this helpful, it would mean the world to me if you liked, commented, subscribed, or share this with a friend to kind of help get the word out. I'd really, really appreciate that. But thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. Now get off the internet, go outside and have a great day. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.